Well, amen and good morning. All right, fired up as usual. I appreciate that. Well, it is good to be here in the house of the Lord with you on this Lord's Day. And if you have your Bibles, go ahead and get to Luke chapter 11. That is where we will be, Luke chapter 11. That's page 1613 in your pew Bibles. And also you'll be able to follow along on the screens. Uh, Whenever we come to the word of God, when we come to this moment where we open up the word as his people, as the people of God, um, it is always good to go before him in prayer. And that is our theme for the sermon today. So it is fitting that we would go before him. So please bow with me. Father, this morning, as we handle your word, we do not handle it lightly. Uh, We do not handle it with mittens like children, but with gauntlets like warriors, knowing that your word is sharper than any two edged sword knowing that you transform us through the power of your word and the power of prayer. We ask that this morning, Lord God, that we would not be the same people who entered into this place, but that we would be transformed. We would be one step nearer to you. We would be one step further along in the journey to transform the heart of this city. And Father God, that we would be more in love with you. So Father, we ask all these things in your son's holy name. Amen. Luke chapter 11 is where we're going to be at today. And I want to talk just briefly with you about um, prayer and really more so than prayer about the relative prayerlessness of Christians. Uh, I do not mean the amount of prayers that are done in a worship service. I do not mean the amount of prayers that you partake in when you go to a prayer group on, say, a Tuesday night. Uh, but what I mean is the relative prayerlessness in our own lives. And I think that you and I suffer, if we're just honest for a second, we suffer from a general sense of prayerlessness in our life. In fact, there was a recent study from a good, solid seminary. Uh, This was about 10 years ago, and it was about a fervent prayer life. In that study, a fervent prayer life was defined as an individual praying for five minutes or more regularly. Okay, that is the working definition of a fervent prayer life for the study, praying five minutes or more regularly. And this was done for mission students at a good, um, esteemed, high-level seminary. Now, just between you and I, I think if anybody's going to be on their prayer game, it's going to be seminary students. And then when you get into foreign mission students, I think those are going to be your special ops of prayer ministry. I think that's your Rob Hassel's of prayer, honestly. Um, they should be on fire for prayer. And, and here's what this study found. Out of 100 students who were surveyed, six of them had fervent prayer lives. Six students had fervent Prayer lives. They were praying for regularly five minutes or more per day. Ninety-four of the ninety-four percent were not. In fact, D.A. Carson said, if you want to embarrass a Christian, the fastest way to do it is to ask them about their personal prayer life. And so today I want to investigate what prayer is. And I want to investigate some practical means of prayer because it is access to God the Father. It's one of the cornerstones of our faith. And in fact, I would argue that it is the means, one of the means for which God's will works itself out in our culture. And so we're going to be in Luke chapter 11. I think if if you and I were honest, we have reasons or we have what might be excuses for why our lives are marked with prayerlessness. Maybe one of those is self-discipline. 
uh, that I don't wake up at 5 a.m. I'm not good about that. And we lump it in with other self-disciplines. I, I don't run a lot. I don't lift weights a lot. I'm not good with diets and I'm not good with prayer. And we like to lump in prayerlessness with other uh, maybe self-disciplines or habits in our lives. And we say, well, I'm not good at those things. And then we make New Year's resolutions and say, well, I'm going to get better. And then we never actually do it. Maybe another reason is we're not really sure what to pray about. Has anybody ever found themselves in a situation where you don't know quite what to pray for? It's interesting. I have direct access to Richard and Shelton because of where my office is. I can sneak up on them at any time before they can lock their door. And there are times where I think, hey, I would love Shelton's opinion on this. I would love to hear what Richard says about this thing. But then I stop myself because I think, well, this isn't that important. And I think we oftentimes project that onto God. This issue, this thing that I'm dealing with, this struggle is not important enough for God. He's busy. He's got that thing going on over in Ukraine. This country's in a mess right now. Surely he doesn't have time for what's going on in my life. Or maybe some of you are confused because you don't know how prayer works. Sometimes you pray for something and it doesn't happen. Or you don't pray for something and it does happen. Or you pray for something and it finally happens and you're blown away and you don't know what works, what the formula is or how it should happen. And then I think oftentimes you and I, if we're being really honest, we're not sure what to expect from prayer. We set aside a certain amount of time. We set aside an hour in the morning and we think it's going to be this rapturous thing where God comes and speaks to us audibly. And then we wake up from our nap and wipe drool off of our lip. And we thought we were supposed to be praying, but we found ourselves dreaming. And I think we have a bunch of excuses for why we don't pray. But I want to argue today that those aren't the actual excuse. The actual excuse is a gospel problem. That we have a we have a problem with the way that we view the gospel. And when we correct, when we understand from Scripture what prayer is and what God is calling us to, when a dependence on God grows in our hearts and a humility and a lack of self-reliance grows in us, then we will be people who love to pray. Pray will be for us as normal as breathing. See, none of you woke up this morning and had to remind yourself to breathe. None of you are in accountability groups for breathing. None of you go to Tuesday night breathing services. You see, for the Christian, prayer is supposed to be a natural response, as natural as breathing. And so in Luke chapter 11, go ahead and get there. We're going to look at what the gospel says about prayer. And and I'm going to go ahead and warn you from the onset, this will be an unconventional teaching on prayer, namely because I just had COVID, so my brain's a little foggy. But two, it is just an unconventional teaching. This is not something that we hear often out of the Gospels. Luke chapter 11. One day, Jesus was praying in a certain place. This is verse 1. When he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray just as John taught his disciples. I love this. I love that the disciples had Jesus there in their presence and they could have asked him anything. Jesus, teach us your PR strategy. Jesus, teach us how you grow crowds so large. Jesus, teach us how to increase our giving units at the church. Jesus, teach us how to transform the heart of the city. They could have asked him anything, and they say, teach us how to pray. Luke has this theme of prayer all throughout it. In fact, Luke talks about prayer more than any other book in the New Testament. Nine prayers are recorded in the book of Luke. Seven of those are unique to the book of Luke. Luke is serious about prayer. Luke is the most detailed gospel there is. If Luke is serious about prayer, it means that Jesus was serious about prayer. 
And so the disciples come to Jesus and they say, teach us how to pray. Now, he then goes into what is called the Lord's Prayer. We've already recited it today. We recite it most Sundays. And I'm going to skip over that, except we're going to look at one word. That first word, it's Father. And now Jesus was a Hebrew. He was a Jew. He would have spoken Aramaic, which is a dialect of Hebrew. The word under the word there, so under Father, is the word Abba, A-B-B-A, not the rock band. Does anyone have any idea what that word means, Abba? Anyone? Daddy. It's an earthy word. It's a crunchy word. It's a familial word. This isn't um, Holy Father. It is Daddy. Joachim Aramaeus, who is a German scholar and theologian, um, did a research project as only German scholars can do. And he went and he looked at every instance in religion where God was referred to up until this point. And he wanted to see if anyone referred to God in a familial sense, in a fatherly sense, up until the time of Jesus. And so he went through all of the literature that's available, and he went for years and years and years, and he found that no, up until the time of Jesus, it was never taught within any other faith to relate to God as daddy. To relate to God as a child relates to their parent. In fact, other religions taught plenty of things that were common with Judaism and Christianity. That God is sovereign, that God created all things, that God was the creator of all people. Um, some of them even taught that God was loving, but none taught that we can approach God with the love that a child has for their father. What they taught is that we approach God with fear. We approach God with sacrifice. We approach God with making an excuse for why we should be able to come and talk to God. And what Jesus is doing is radical because he says, when you pray, the proper view with how a believer should come to God is this way. Daddy. Kids approach their parents in weird ways, don't they? My, my kid approaches me in weird ways. Audacious at times. At times she approaches me as no one else approaches me. She comes up to me and she has requests that I would not expect to hear from anyone else because she approaches me as her daddy. Jesus gets into this and what he means here. Skip down to verse five, because Jesus tells two parables back to back. Then Jesus said to them, this is after he teaches the Lord's prayer. Then Jesus said to them, suppose you have a friend and you go to him at midnight and say, friend, lend me three loaves of bread. A friend of mine on a journey has come to me and I have no food to offer him. And suppose the one inside answers, don't bother me. The door is locked and my children and I are in bed. I can't give up and give you anything. I tell you, even though he will not get up and give you the bread because of friendship, yet because of your shameless audacity, he will surely get up and give you as much as you need. So here's the parable. Here's the breakdown. There is a man who is in bed with his children. I don't know if any of you co-sleep, you young families, uh, but this is a man who is in bed with his children. A man comes to him at midnight, knocks on the door and says, hey, I need three loaves of bread. I had some friends come by. A few observations. This is an agrarian society that is pre-electricity. Midnight is the middle of the night. It is dark. OK, um, this is inconvenient at best. It is rude and disrespectful at worst. 
Two, it's an inconvenient ask. The man is already asleep and he has his children in bed. At that time, they didn't have bedrooms for every kid. Um, They had a sleeping quarter in their house. So it was normal for families to sleep together as units. Listen, if he gets up, the entire family's getting up. And if you have young children, you know that if unless somebody's bleeding out of their ears, you don't wake up the baby. All right, you're not waking up my daughter. You better have a really good excuse if you come knocking on my door at midnight. The third thing is this isn't an emergency. It's simply not an emergency. I need some bread because I've had some friends who just dropped by unannounced. This isn't an emergency. It might be embarrassing that you don't have food to put on the table for them, but this is by no means the other man's problem. And then fourth, it's a big ask. Isn't it three loaves of bread? The loaves of bread in those days were huge. One could feed a whole family. He's asking for three loaves of bread. And Jesus says, this is how you should pray. This is how you should pray. And then I love this. Though he will not get up and give you the bread because of friendship, yet because of your shameless audacity. He will get up and give you what you need. Are you praying with shameless audacity? I'm serious. And that that sounds almost disrespectful. And if it wasn't Jesus teaching this, you would think I was crazy. Are you praying with shameless audacity? Um, The Greek word there under the actual English text means lack of constraint. Improper. Almost disrespectful. Are you praying big prayers? You know, I think a lot of times that as believers, we go to God once with our issues and we say, well, I don't want to, I don't want to burden God. I don't want to put this thing on God. I don't want to ask God too many times. I've already been to him yesterday and and I don't want to do it again. I don't want to become annoying to God. And are you praying big, audacious prayers? This man goes to another man in the middle of the night. It is inconvenient. It is burdensome. It's not an emergency and it's audacious. Are you praying to God like that? Are you praying big prayers? You see, I'm not going to argue that our prayers are too little here at First Presbyterian Church. Uh, I think we do have fairly large prayers at a large scale. I think that we are asking $33 million for a building campaign. That is a big ask. I think that's a big prayer, and God has been faithful to do it. That alone should stand as a testimony to the efficacy of big prayers. But I'm asking about your life. Are you praying big prayers in your personal life? Are you asking God big, audacious things in your own life? Now, let's keep going. So I say to you, this is verse 9, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. Uh, How do you knock on doors? Do you knock like this? No, if you knock like that, no one's coming to answer the door. Okay, you're just going to be standing outside looking like a weirdo. All right, knocking is persistent. You knock until someone answers the door. And Jesus is talking about persistence here. Pray persistently. You see, you see I, I think some of us have prayers in our lives that we've given up on too early. 
We have things in our lives that we've given up on way too early because we asked God once, we asked God twice, and then we just gave up on it. And we said, well, this just must be what it's going to be. This is the new normal now. This is what I'm settling for. This is what God has for me. And we've given up way too early. God says, knock, keep knocking. I want my prayer life, and this is just me personally, I want my prayer life to be the kind where God has to turn off the lights and hide under the table because I'm at the door knocking and knocking and knocking until somebody comes and answers. I want to be audacious in my prayer life, and I know you do too. I want to pray the way God says to pray. I don't want to settle for anything less. I don't want to settle for prayers that are too tame. I want to settle for prayers that are big and audacious and that are earth moving and and mountains have to move before my prayers are answered and our prayers are answered. And that's what God is saying to pray like. And then he tells another parable. Verse 11. Which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give them a snake instead? That would be a weird bait and switch. Or if he asks for an egg, will he give him a scorpion? If you then, though you are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? Uh, For those of us who have kids, have you ever been riding around and your kid goes, can we go to Chick-fil-A? And then you go, no, but I've got a scorpion here. Hopefully none of you. There's DSS, uh, and we will call them. No. That's ridiculous. Jesus here is talking about the persistence of prayer and that God, as a good father, will give good gifts to his children. He says, if you then who are evil, if you then who are wrought with sin know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more then will God the Father answer when we make big requests? How much more then will he answer when you continue to pray about infertility? How much more then will he, and we've seen that time and time again, how much more then will he answer when you pray about your financial problems? How much more then will he answer when you continue to pray about your marital strain? How much more then will he answer? Why? Because he's a good father who loves to hear from his children. Now we're not done. Flip over to Luke chapter 18 because this is, um, Luke chapter 11 is some weird teaching. And if Luke didn't record it again, I would say it was a, just a weird thing that we don't know how to translate. But Luke chapter 18 records this almost the same way. Luke chapter 18 verse 1. This is the parable of the persistent widow. Then Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. He said, in a certain town, there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared what people thought. And there was a widow in that town who kept coming to him with the plea, grant me justice against my adversary. For some time he refused, but finally he said to himself, even though I don't fear God or care what people think, yet because this widow keeps bothering me. I will see that she gets justice so that she will not eventually come and attack me. Jesus told this parable to teach his disciples why they should pray with persistence. And he teaches about this elderly widow who goes to a judge time and again and again and again and again until she gets justice. Are you praying persistently? Look, there's no deeper theology here. There's no, there's no, and here's three ways I'm going to link this to the Trinity. There's none of that here. This is really simple. 
Are we praying persistently? Are we praying big prayers? Are we talking to God? Do you know the shortest verse in the entire scripture in the original languages is to pray without ceasing? Pray without ceasing. It's one word. It's a verb. It's an active form of a verb in the scriptures. Pray without ceasing. Go to God and go to God and go to God and go to God again after you've gone to God again. Keep going to God. So a few observations as we wrap up. One, prayer changes things. From these parables alone, we learn that prayer changes things. I have this huge pet peeve, and if this is you, I'm sorry. Send me your angry emails. Um, when good-intentioned people say hyper-spiritual things that don't make sense, um, it drives me nuts. All right, Like the bread of life never gets stale. What does that mean? Um, there, there's one out there. Prayer doesn't change the situation it changes me. That drives me crazy because it goes against the scripture. Prayer changes things. All right, we see this all throughout the scripture. And, and there's a movie about C.S. Lewis that Anthony Hopkins was in called The Shadowlands. It came out in 1993. And when he married his wife, Joy Davidman, I believe was her name, um, their first night of marriage, he gets down on his knees beside the bed and he's praying to God. And Joy Davidman asks him, um, you don't think, God is really going to change things in your life, do you? And he stops for a second. And I love C.S. Lewis. I'm not, I'm not bashing C.S. Lewis. And he says, no, I think prayer changes me. Now, sure, prayer does change you. Okay, that's part of it. But prayer literally changes situations. That situation in your life that you're a little too used to, you know that prayer can change that thing? Do you? You know, your addiction that you're wrestling with, prayer can change that thing. That ruined relationship that you think, surely there is no way that this thing is going to get fixed. Prayer can change that thing because prayer changes things. The early church got this. There was a time in the book of Acts where um, the apostle Peter is in prison. And it says that the early church prayed earnestly all night that Peter would be released. And lo and behold, early in the morning... It was Peter at the door because God set him free. They didn't just ask God, then flip on Sports Center. No, they asked and they asked and they asked again. There's a time in the, in the epistles later on where Paul is asking for God to take away one of his habitual sins, one of the things that he struggles with. And finally, God sends a messenger and says, Paul, you're going to have to let this one go. You're asking too much. Because persistent prayer changes things. The second thing, um, we are desperate for the mercy of God. I think our lives are marked with prayerlessness because we think we are in control of way too much. Um, you and I, when, when things get tough and when situations get strenuous, you and I assume this role that we are in control of all the variables and those variables that we are not in control of, we want to bring under our control so that we can manipulate the situation. Power is the ability to define phenomenon and make it act in a desired manner, right? And we think we have the power. And as Westerners, we're addicted to do-it-yourself mentality. That's why when you go into Barnes & Noble outside of the magazines, the largest section is what? Self-help. Because we know we have a problem, and the divine irony of it is we think we can fix it. 
And we think we're in control of situations and we don't realize how desperate we are for the mercy of God. Um, you young families, listen, you cannot raise your children well enough to glorify God. It takes a dependence on God. For this church, we cannot ecclesiology our way into um, a good church, a good preaching team. We cannot do it all on our own horsepower with the right knowledge. We depend on the mercy of God. We cannot muster up enough giving units. We can't get enough money to transform the heart of the city. We need the mercy of God. So item number two is we are desperate for the mercy of God. Three, God is abundant in mercy. One of my favorite stories in all of the Gospels comes from Luke chapter 8. It's this woman who for 12 years has had a blood disorder. Uh, if you're familiar with your ancient Hebrew customs, which I know you all are, um, she would be rendered ceremonially unclean. For 12 years, this woman was not able to go into the temple courts and worship. She wasn't able. She was ostracized. She was pressed to the fringes of society for 12 years. And Jesus is passing by one day with a huge crowd. And she knows if I can just touch Jesus, I'll be healed. If I can just touch him, if I can get near him, I'll be healed. The problem is when someone who is unclean touches someone who is clean, it makes the clean person unclean. And yet she touches his robe and she finds herself healed. And Jesus says, who touched me? Power went out from me. The audacity of this woman. The persistence of this woman. The courage of this woman. This is audacious. Now, Jesus is so clean. He's so holy that it doesn't make him unclean. But to do something like that is absurd. This is how we are to pray. Audacious, big, bold, persistent prayers. And finally, number four, um, we pray trusting like children. We pray trusting like children. I know what some of you are thinking. Some of you are thinking, Charlie, but I did pray like that and God didn't answer my prayers. I did ask God for this thing and I didn't give up and I prayed and I prayed and I prayed until I couldn't pray any longer. And I went to Tuesday prayer service and nothing happened with this particular issue, this thing X, whatever it is in your life. So let me flip one of the parables. If your child asks you for a scorpion, would you give them one? Okay, the answer is no. Nobody said that. So that's disheartening. Okay, that's going to be next week's sermon. Don't give your kids scorpions. Okay. Um, All right. So if your child asks for a scorpion, you don't give them a scorpion. Sometimes the answer to our prayers is no. Because God is not a genie. He's a father. Genies grant wishes. Fathers raise children. If my child got a hold of a genie lamp, you better watch out because she is going to have some outrageous things. Sometimes God says no. And listen, um, I talk to a lot of young adults. I talk to a lot of college kids. And, and a lot of times I get this. Well, if God is all powerful and all loving, then why didn't this thing happen in my life? Or why did this thing happen in my life? And let, let me put it like this. If we knew everything that God knows, we would always answer prayers the way God answers prayers. I'm going to say that again. and I'm going to say it a little slower. If we knew everything that God knows, we would always answer prayers the way God answers prayers. 
He is the divine sovereign of the universe who holds all power in his hands. Sometimes I overrule my child's requests. Okay? Um, this past week, or two weeks ago, we were diagnosed with COVID, and it was my daughter's seventh birthday. Uh, and so we had to cancel her seventh birthday party uh, because it was our first day of COVID, and I didn't want to be that guy. Uh, and so there was tears, there was anguish, there was heartbreak, but it was the right thing to do. Sometime, and, and if there is a distance, if there's a distance in wisdom between my six-year-old or seven-year-old daughter and my 36-year-old self, surely the gap between my wisdom and God's wisdom is much greater. If we knew everything God knows, we would always answer prayer the way God answers prayers. So people of God, here's my question, and this is simple. This is, there's nothing too profound today. Are you praying big, persistent, bold, audacious prayers? Are you going to God as only a child goes to their daddy? Because Jesus tells us, when you go to God, say this, Abba or Daddy. Don't approach God in fear. Approach God as a child approaches their father and say, Lord, we are desperate for your mercy. Jesus gives out mercy as though it's a reflex or an impulse. He just doles it out. He dishes it out. And and this morning, what prayer is he going to dish mercy out on in your life? Because I'm guessing many of you need to up your prayer life. I'm guessing many of us need to go to him and approach him and say, you know what? I haven't been good about this. And so I'm going to ask some big things and I'm going to pray persistently like the widow who kept seeking justice, like the man who knocked because he needed food. And I'm going to come and come and come again until you answer. First Presbyterian Church, people of God, this is how we pray. Pray with me now as we close. Father God, this morning, may your Holy Spirit move in our lives. May we be a people transformed. May we be a people whose prayer life is transformed, that we would approach you with the audacity that Jesus talks about. Lord, it even feels weird to say it, much less do it. And yet this is three times in the scripture recorded. Persistent, audacious prayers. As only a child could approach their father, so we approach you. Lord, help us to transform the heart of the city and may it begin with our own hearts this morning, Father. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.